Last week we saw Jesus gave a parable that called his disciples to be shrewd like the unrighteous steward. Jesus was not saying, be unrighteous like the steward. He was saying, calculate what is coming and act appropriately. Contemplate what is coming, think on what is coming, and respond appropriately. Jesus said, the world calculates and acts upon what they even know in their unrighteousness. So how much more should we who really know what's coming act appropriately in righteousness? The assumption is the world uses their knowledge to further their wicked causes. But we who follow Jesus need to use our righteous knowledge of what's coming and act further or act to further our master's cause to bring more glory to God. Last week I flew over this section of application points that Jesus gave, especially the last two and I want to kind of back up a little bit and look at them and answer some questions that some of you asked as we went through and, and talked afterwards. I don't think it hurts us to uh, walk slowly through passages so we understand them well. We will look at these applications so that we can both know what it says and what it means, but also so that we can apply it pro appropriately to our hearts and to our lives. Plus, we need to understand these verses well so that when we get into the next section, as uh, Mark was reading, we will understand that section also. Both sections fit very uh, tightly together, very important. If, if you notice in verse 14, the Pharisees react to what Jesus has just said. And a lot of it is the application is what they're reacting to. So, let's look at Christ's three applications again that provoked a wicked response from the Pharisees who were listening. And kind of delve into what these applications imply. Hey, you like the picture? You see it? A wolf in sheep's clothing. We'll talk about that as we go along. The applications for the disciple. The applications for the disciple. Those are found in verses 9 through 13. Jesus calls the disciples to action based on what they know is coming. Respond appropriately in light of what you know is going to happen. Notice first we saw... The followers of Christ must be about the ministry of reconciliation. Followers of Christ must be about the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 9 we saw, And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Again, notice Jesus starts this section with, And I say to you, this phrase Jesus often used in his sermons or when he was talking to them to point to an application point. In other words, okay, now this is how my story applies to you. This is what you need to take away from the message. Again, remember the context of the parable is in light of what you know is coming, act appropriately. In light of what's coming, you better act accordingly. This is what the steward did, and this is what we who are stewards of God's things should do too. In the first application, the setting is obviously into the eternal dwellings. This is what they're thinking about. This is the view in the future. Jesus is saying, so in light of what is coming, heaven, eternal dwellings, make friends with those who will be there to enjoy it with you when you arrive there. The question is, how do you make friends with people who will share the joy, your joy in eternity with you? How do you make friends with them? Well, that's using worldly wealth on things that promote the gospel. We are friends in Christ through faith in Christ alone. Kent Hughes stated this about this passage. He said, what is inescapably clear here is that our wealth, and our possessions are to be used to win eternal friends. Everything you have 
should be about winning eternal friends. John MacArthur stated this about the sermon. He, he said in his sermon on this, Jesus is saying, use your money so that someday when you go to heaven, there will be a group of folks there welcoming you. He continued, what does that mean? These folks who are there to welcome you will be the ones whom you have reached with the gospel by your money. The ministry of reconciliation is a ministry of bringing people into a right relationship with God. It's making brothers and sisters in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus says, make friends with your worldly wealth so that these new friends will receive you into heaven. Again, he does not say, get rich off the backs of your brothers and sisters. Church is not the place to come get some good business contacts so you can get rich. This is what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus is about confronting that. Jesus calls his followers to be totally different from the religious people of their day. Jesus called them to be sacrificial and to use their wealth to promote the gospel. This is what we see from very early in the church. We see the early church members knew eternity was all that really mattered. They used their wealth to help their brothers and sisters. They loved people with their money. Take your Bibles and look over at Acts chapter 2, verse 44. I think it's so interesting how what Jesus taught on is then lived out in Acts chapter 2 when the church is formed. In Acts chapter 2, it says, verse 44, After Pentecost, the church is growing, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see in this little passage here, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all? What does this imply? That they got it. <laughs> they got the message Jesus had talked about in Luke. All that I own is not mine, it's his. Matter of fact, even my property? Now, I'll tell you what, you might have some guys out there uh, in today's society that would say, boy, this is a horrible investment. Whatever you're doing, don't sell your property. That's what you're going to retire on and go collect seashells one day. They're selling their properties, they're selling their stuff, and they're all about one another. Helping those in need. And it keeps going. Didn't keep going, unfortunately, did it? But look at Acts 4, 32. Look at this. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each one as they had need. Wow! That doesn't fit in American culture. Look at this. No one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them all. Wow. Oh, but Mike, this is description, not prescription. <laughs> it's funny how we flip that one out there. We flip that out there when we don't want to apply it to our heart. 
Right? We pull that little card out. Yeah, but you know, that's the early church. We don't do that anymore. That's not us anymore. Well, I'll tell you this. The heart should be our hearts. The attitude towards one another should still be our attitude towards one another. Shouldn't it? This is what Jesus was talking to them. He's talking to the Pharisees and the disciples, and he's saying, look, your attitude's got to be totally different. You've got to be about making friends because eternity is all that matters, and all that you have is not really yours, it's God's. That's what he's getting at. These disciples appear to have got what Jesus was saying. What they owned was ultimately not their own. All they owned was for the edification of the body. Folks, our passage on Wednesday night reveals the same thing, and this is a little bit later on. On Wednesday night, we talked about this passage. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, look at this, 428. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Oh, that's not how we think. This is the believer's responsibility. Oh, how many of you think we should stop being thieves? Raise your hand. Okay, good. You got that part. Yeah, got that side of the equation. How about this? You should work to help others. You should work to give. See, it's put off. Put off what? Stealing. Quit being a thief. We got the put off part, hopefully. And put on working to give. That's what it's about. It's the same section. It's all in the same part. This is application. This is what Jesus was talking about. We see the future, don't we? We have an eternal perspective. We understand that the glory and forgiveness of God, so we act accordingly. Because after all, we're not storing up a bunch of stuff here on this earth because this earth is what? Passing away. And we can't take it with us. It's going to fail. Correct? Boy, this is different, isn't it? Different thinking. How's your 401k doing? Oh, but I've got a $5 million life insurance policy on me so that if anything happens, what? I'm paying $1,000 a month for that $5 million policy. I know that was application. If the shoe fits, wear it. (laughs) Here's the reality, folks. Our investments must be eternally focused. Are we investing our resources in the proclamation and promotion of the gospel? That's what we should be about. That's what Jesus was saying. Let's look further at Christ's application for his parable. And we see the second point. Followers of Christ must be trustworthy with God's possessions. Followers of Christ must be trustworthy with God's possessions. Look at verses 10 through 12. He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore... If you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Verse 10 is like a proverb. It contains two parallel statements that help to develop the main thought with the first phrase being the positive side of the argument and the second phrase being the negative side of the equation. He who is faithful with very little is faithful also in much, positive. He who is unrighteous in very little thing is unrighteous also in much. The emphasis is on 
how a person uses what they have. How do you use what you have? It's stewardship. The Proverbs about stewardship. If a person is a faithful steward with a little, then they will be a faithful steward with much. If a person is an unrighteous steward with a little, they will be an unrighteous steward with much. This proverb is basically saying how you use even the smallest stewardship will reveal what you will do with a huge stewardship. But it's very important for us to understand something. Many of us are constantly wanting more, right? We want more. We think, I want more money. I want more stuff. We want a better car. We want a bigger house. We want a more prominent role at our job. We want more of an out-front position at church. We want more friends. We want a spouse if we're single. We want more children. We want children at all if we don't have any. We want a bigger ministry. We want a higher position of authority. This is what we want. We want more. But Jesus doesn't give us in this passage what we should want more of. He wants us to focus on one main thing. And that is, what are we doing with what we have? See, our problem is, is that we're so focused on wanting more that we're not focused on what we're doing with what we have. We are too focused on more and not enough on what we have. We must be faithful what we have, no matter how small that is. I think we're way too often focused on what we don't have and not near as focused on being faithful or trustworthy with what we do have and what God has loaned us. You realize what you have is a gift from God. And if you understand that what you have, you should be thankful for what you have and you should be a good steward of what you have. You won't be focused on what you don't have. Remember what it said in Acts chapter 4, verse 32? And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. What is that? They basically understood that even what they had wasn't theirs. What I have is really yours. What you have is really mine. They understood the concept that what they owned were just temporary holdings. It wasn't what they deserved. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot get this enough. Your money is God's money. Your stuff is His stuff. Your car is His. Your house is His. Your job is His. Your church role is His role for you. Your friends are his friends. Your spouse is his spouse on loan to you. Your children are his children on loan to you. Your body is his body on loan to you. We own nothing. That's what we are. We own nothing. You get that? You become a believer... Guess what? You no longer own anything. Did you know that? No, you, that's my house. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> because he can take something to get you to realize that he is more valuable than that stuff. We own nothing and we are happy about it because he has bought us through his son his death burial and resurrection says I have bought you you are mine folks everyone who is trustworthy with a little is trustworthy with much and everyone who is unrighteous with little is unrighteous with much we will be trustworthy with Whatever we have, if we fully realize that all that we have 
is really his. Again, I have uh, at, on occasions borrowed some of your vehicles and borrowed some of your stuff before. And I can tell you that when I drive your vehicle, I drive it a lot safer than mine. <laughs> the problem is, I need to think that way about my stuff. Because my stuff is not my stuff. It's God's stuff. Do you understand that? By the way now, don't fall into the trap of thinking. What you have is because you earned that size of a stewardship. Because that's what the Pharisees thought. They thought what? They thought, hey, what I have is because I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> I've been this, and I've earned this, and I've shown I'm all that. So God, because I deserve it, has given me more. That doesn't work either. See, that's fallen over to the other side of the equation, into legalism. Listen, you have what you have by the grace of God alone. You have what you have, not because you deserve it. The little bit that you have is because God gave it to you with unmerited favor. Don't think, okay, I'm going to dig down deep and work hard, and then God will give me a bigger house and a better car. Or, don't think, I will give 50% of my money this week to the church, and then He'll give it back to me in this lottery-like windfall of money. That's how the Pharisees thought, and that's what the Pharisees taught, and that's what many false teachers teach today. This is not what Jesus is saying. No, the idea is, is not to want more, so work hard. It's realize what you have is grace from God, so work hard in the grace of God, knowing that it's not yours. It's a difference. It's a fine line. At any moment, you can fall over onto the other side and become a works righteousness legalist trying to earn your way to God. Or you can fall over to the other side and say, oh, well, I can do whatever I want. No big deal. You can bury your head in the sand and not think eternally. Which would be wrong, too. The idea is very clear. What you have is what God wants you to have. And what God wants you to glorify Him with is what you have right now. So be faithful with it. What you have out of gratitude and honor to the Lord is on loan to you, so use it correctly. Everything you have. Be content with what you have. And be faithful or trustworthy with it, no matter how much you have or how little you have. The future aspect of Christ's argument in the eternal reward is there, heaven. It is in, review, in view. In other words, use what you're loaned with an eye on reward in heaven. We must be good stewards because your eternity will be affected by how faithful you are with what you have. But again, the basis of our faithfulness is a right understanding of the grace of God. That what you have is from grace. So in other words, listen, don't think you're getting to heaven by being good, steward. Because you have been given heaven, and because He's graciously given what you have, and eternity is coming, because you have grace, be a good steward. That's very important. Man, you've got to meditate on that. You need to take this and chew on it and think on it. Because at any moment, you can miss it. You can turn it around and go back the other way. Next, Jesus makes two questions there. He gives two questions that kind of help clarify his point. He says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, which is worldly wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And second question, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Christ's point is very simple. 
If you don't care for what you have now, then obviously God will not reward you in heaven. The two questions have an assumed answer of no one's going to give you anything. Now, if you're not trustworthy with worldly wealth, then obviously no one will entrust the true riches of heaven to you. If you are not trustworthy in the use of God's possessions now, then obviously God will not give you that which is yours or your own in eternity. The play on the words here is interesting. It's crucial. If you have not been faithful is what it says. I like the word trustworthy better because it's actually the same word, the root word as the who will entrust the true riches to you. The idea is, is if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's possession, who will entrust, you, entrust riches to you? Again, the whole point of the parable is, if we know what is coming, we need to act accordingly. If we know heaven's coming, we need to act accordingly. If we know that one day we are going to face the God who has loaned this stuff to us, then obviously we want to act accordingly. It's His stuff. So act right. It makes sense, right? It's just common sense. Use it. The implications for these words are staggering. Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, that every moment you have on earth is a gift from God? Every moment, every second that you have is a gift from God. And that everything that you do with every second of every day with all the possessions that you have show the world what you know is coming. If you know eternity is coming, then you're going to be all about what? The proclamation of the gospel. The promotion of the gospel. You're going to be all about Him. You're going to be all about your reward in heaven, which is Him. You understand every possession you have on this earth is from God. And the way we use our possessions will have eternal ramifications. I am the worst at this at times. You know, this money, especially in small amounts, man, I, I am guilty. This is very convicting for me. How many of you step over pennies in the sidewalks all the time? Oh, I don't want to be a penny pincher. You drop one on the ground. Oh, somebody else will find it. Oh, I'll just keep this. No big deal. Flipping things around like it's no big deal. Man, it's God's. I just said, forget it. No big deal. I know. It's a penny. It's a penny. It's interesting that he wants us to be a good steward of everything. Our time, our possessions, our thoughts, everything. God has given us our children. And boy, we're good managers of them when we're alive and fresh, right? <laughs> but when we're tired and struggling, are we good stewards then? Hmm. We are His stewards. We are responsible for managing everything we have for God to be glorified. No, there's not always instant gratification, is there? All parents in the room say, Amen. There are times where there is no gratification. We don't see it at all. We see no effect. Parents, you, you, I know. Am I the only one where you feel like you're just like, bang, 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 hitting your head up against the wall? Like, ugh. Or we get really good at cleaning up the outside of the cup on our kids. <laughs> we make them beautiful little spotless Pharisees. <laughs> Man, look at that child. Yeah, he's great, ain't he? <laughs> Except when he's alone at the house with me. And the heart is really exposed. All y'all, I hate it when y'all do that to me, just so you know. You come up and say, man, your children are so well behaved. Come home with me. 
<laughs> sleep, sleep in our house for one night. <laughs> Look into their souls. Oh, folks. We must be good stewards of what God has given us with an eternal perspective because the reality is is that our reward is not coming often until heaven. What we do with what we have, what he has loaned us, will be shown in the future. So the believer who knows what's coming must invest in the ministry of reconciliation and he must be trustworthy with their possessions, all for the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom. This is kind of this kind of view of the money was the opposite of how the self-righteous Pharisees viewed money, folks. That's why right now there is a fire a brewing in the Pharisees. So by the time you get to verse fourteen, woo, it comes out. Jesus is saying things that go totally contrary to the way they think. They thought everything they owned was earned by their self-righteous behavior. They believed they deserved everything they had, like I said. They believed that all that they had was theirs because of their good works. But Jesus is saying just the opposite. He is saying anything we have is given by grace. It's not yours, and it's only on loan, and you should have an eternal perspective, not an earthly perspective. The Pharisees would have cringed at all these thoughts because then they would have had to admit they did not deserve even what they had. And that, for a Pharisee, is horrible. They have to say, I don't deserve anything I have, is what Jesus is basically saying here. Their religious principle was this. If you do religious good works, God blesses you with your money and you can do with it however you want to. See, why am I a rich Pharisee? Because I'm a good person. And so therefore I deserve to use it however I want to use it. Because after all, I'm real wise with my money. It's totally opposite. They were identical to the word of faith movement of today. If you give, God will bless you with your best life now. Give and you will get. It's all about you. I was doing some research on some applications for you and some illustrations of this point. I ran across this quote from a church member that goes to a guy, a, past, a reverend dollar. His name is ironic, isn't it? <laughs> Reverend Dollar. He said, or she said rather, tithers simply have priority, she said. People are not allowed to touch dollar during the services. She said, simply because the anointing is flowing at that point. She said, the church purchased a Rolls Royce for dollar to use because he deserves the best. Woo! Yowzer! Run! Man! I was like, what? Folks, man, my blood was curdling last night. It's not what it's about. You give because you've been given to. You give because it's not yours. And the promotion of God's glory is what you're about. We're like the Roman Catholics, right? Who says, give and your sins will be forgiven. This is so backwards. Jesus says, give because God has graciously provided for you and you are just stewards of his possessions. This is a good verse for us to remember. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Notice the third point. Followers of Christ must have only one master. Followers of Christ must have only one master. No servant can serve 
two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We see here, Jesus goes directly to the heart of the issue for all of us. We can only truly be committed to one master. Our hearts will either be committed to God or the things of this world. We will either seek God, knowing He owns everything after all, or we will seek our possessions. When we try to be committed to the one, we will naturally hate the other in comparison. If I'm all about getting rich, then I will hate and despise God who owns it all. Because then I'll realize, wait, if I'm trying to get rich, it's really not mine. I'm going to give it away and I'll hate him. I'll take possession of it. If I'm all about God, I will hate or despise worldly riches for my own glory. I'm afraid we often want our cake and eat it too, right? As the phrase goes. We want to love and serve God and be rich at the same time. Don't we? We want to have a lot of stuff because after all, I'll give a lot. I'll be able to give my 10%. And you know, 10% of a a million dollars is $100,000. Right? I have a million. I can give $100,000. Folks, we can only be committed to one or the other. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says our hearts tend towards allegiance to one at the expense of the other. That's what your hearts are bent towards. And that's why he's addressing the Pharisees or the disciples and saying, look, you can't do both. What we seek, pursue, commit to, love, means we will reject, despise, and hate the other. Very simple. He says it, right? This is what happened with the church in Laodicea. I think this is a perfect illustration of the problem of a worldly-focused church. Look over it there, Revelation 3. This is the example of a worldly-focused church. You ready? Revelation 3, verse 14 to 22. Jesus Lays down the hammer. By the way, you thought it was tough. It's getting rougher. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. It's interesting. In this description of himself, he goes back to the beginning. It's almost like, hey, you just need to get that I'm the creator. <laughs> You've totally forgotten who I am. I'm God. I know your deeds and that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, literally vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor and blind and naked. By the way... Hot or cold, he does not mean if you're on the fence, get off the fence. That's not what he's saying here. His point is, is be useful, not useless. And his point is this. Hot was a good thing, and cold was a good thing. But the people of Laodicea, where the water mixed, was lukewarm, which was what? Good for nothing. So, what? Be good for something. Either hot or cold. Don't be useless like lukewarm water. That has no effect and no good at all. He says, you are useless in effect. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will be, not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, isn't this ironic? That these people think they're rich. These people think they're the best of the best. We got it. This is good. 
And he basically says, you are shameful. You don't see it. You are wretched. You better repent. Because if you don't, your exposure is coming. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Folks, by the way, this, is the mo- this has got to be the scariest thing in the whole world to hear for a church that God is outside the church. Christ is outside the church. He doesn't want to come into the church. He's not even a part of the church. I'm afraid, folks, that this is exactly what we see in many, many, many churches around the world today and especially in our culture. This is a church who ignored the word of the Lord in Luke 16, and they had pursued worldly wealth at the expense of a repentant relationship with God. And Jesus says, in effect, you are useless. You are a church full of people who really need to repent. I'm not even in the church. Repent now is what he's saying to them. Followers of Christ are all about using what they own for God's glory and the advancement of His name. We know and embrace the fact we are stewards of God's stuff. We seek to honor Him. We seek Him. And everything else is not important in comparison. We know Christ is Lord and Master, and so we seek, pursue, and we love Him And we despise, reject, and hate the things of the world, which amounts to idolatry. Our lives are His because we are bought by Him for Him. But notice how the Pharisees react to this message. Look at Luke 16. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at Him. That literally scoffing, it's this. They were turning their noses up at him. You can just see them. You know, it's that, it's that imagery of, yeah. Yeah, right. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Man, I, I tell you, Jesus, I am I'm convinced that he was burning inside. Just the languages he uses here. This is an abomination in the sight of God. This is detestable in the sight of God, what you are about. Your hearts are so wicked, God hates it. It's deplorable. I confess I had to really guard my heart last night as I researched some of these religious leaders of today and their earnings. I was shocked. All I can say is there's nothing new under the sun. The religious leaders of of Jesus' day, the lovers of money, are the same today. It's the same thing. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were lovers of money, and today, many of the religious leaders of our day, even people that I thought, there were a couple of them, not on this, not the ones I'll show you. I didn't list all of them. It's a good thing. There were a couple of them, I'm like, what? What? You make a half a million dollars a year, and you take it home? What? I love that title of MacArthur's book or of John Piper's book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. The only difference is they use the name. This is the staggering thing. They use the name of Jesus to promote their wicked religion. It's staggering. And I want to name some names. I know that doesn't. I'm naming names now. 
And I haven't in a while. And one of the reasons why I don't like to name names is because it comes off as that I'm judging these people. But let me tell you something. Paul named some names. And I'm going to name some names. And another reason is because I was in a Christian bookstore this week. I think God in his providence had me do it. I'm sitting there, sitting there filling out my anniversary card that I shouldn't have. I should have gotten earlier, but I got it late. Filling out my anniversary card. And a person comes up to the counter and says uh, to the person at the desk, they said, oh, you want one of these $5 gifts here? There's some really nice resources here. You know, T.D. Jakes is here. T.D. Jakes book, it's $5. You know, he's the best American preacher. And I was like, he's the best American heretic. It doesn't believe in the Trinity. It believes in modalism. So I'm going to name some names. Look. Take identity. Look at their faces. The Crouch family. This is their mansion. Don't watch that network. It's horrific. They are stealing from the poor to pad their wallets. Sheep and wolf clothing. There he is. Joel Osteen and his wife. There's their mansion. Yeah, all that. All of those. That's all theirs. That's... That is Mr. Dollar and his wife. The one that the prisoner said he deserves a Rolls Royce. There's his Rolls Royce. And his jet. His private jet. Heresy! I'm sorry, it's heresy! It's, you would not believe this list goes on and on and on. Yes, I am whacking Joyce Myers. I'm sorry, that's her compound. There are one, two, three, four, five, six houses and a swimming pool. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a pond and a, all kinds of uh, fountain... Yeah, but she does so much. Pat Robertson. Do you realize, didn't understand this, do you realize that his net worth is between $140 million to a billion dollars? <laughs> There's T.D. Jakes. Look at this phrase, the next Billy Graham. Oh, my. Times Magazine said that he was the best American preacher. Ladies and gentlemen, his net worth is estimated at $18 million. He has multi-million dollar houses. This is lovers of money. Run! Run now! Run! Man, I prayed some imprecatory prayers last night. May God shut these people up, for they are killing the gospel. And they say, Jesus is their Lord. I'm sorry. This is the closest I can get to the spot of righteous anger. I want to warn you. This is who we're prone to be. We are prone to put idols of money in our hearts. Calvin said our hearts are idol-making factories. Ladies and gentlemen, this is who we are apart from the grace of God. I love this passage and we'll close. 
loved Joshua. If God, by his grace, decides to ever have us another boy, I'm fairly sure his name's going to be Joshua. Just the more I study Joshua, I love it. Joshua 24, 14 to 15 says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who will you serve? By God's grace, as for me and my house, we will serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the triune, holy, perfect God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Lord God Almighty. As for me and my house, he is king, not me. I'm just a steward of his stuff. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the wretchedness of our own hearts apart from your grace. Lord, and we don't want to meditate too long on these wicked men because we know that in our self-righteousness could pop up within us and think that we have been good stewards all of our life. And Lord, you know that's not true. Father, you have been gracious and kind to us. And our desire is to serve you. We pray now that you will use us for your glory. Show off your name. No matter what we have, how small or how great, may we use it for your glory forever. Until you return, we pray this in Jesus' name.